This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's a new week, a new month. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions, um, questions about what we believe in, why we believe in anything on your heart. I'll do the best I can to answer. You need only to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. Once again, that's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. 340-9585. Hope you had a great weekend in church yesterday uh, here at Calvary Chapel. We were we were really packed. It was Communion Sunday, and um, I, I people got saved yesterday. Every time somebody gets saved, we're one more person closer to that finite number of non-Jews who are going to believe and be in heaven and uh, we get closer and closer and closer to the Lord's return. Um, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, just as a reminder, we have our uh, men's, women's, and youth Bible studies. That's uh, uh, junior high school and high school, uh, all here at 7 o'clock. Pastor Ken will be teaching the men as usual. Tonight his wife, May uh, Cruzado, is teaching the ladies, and they are in the book of Colossians. So you can watch the ladies at calvaryessay.com. Uh, 7 o'clock by live stream. Uh, it would be better if you could just join. It's always a great time. And remember, for the ladies especially, a lot of the ministry that occurs happens uh, after the study with the questions and answers that come up there. So it's a great, great time. We'd love to see you here tonight. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let me get right to the questions, and uh, we'll see what uh, what's happening while we wait for some phone calls. Uh, Our first question is anonymous. Um, He or she says, I've been asked to go to a Jewish Seder this Passover. Uh, I'm not a Jew, so is it something I should do or no? Uh, Anonymous, it's up to you. It's okay. There's no real value in it other than than understanding historically um, uh, what the Passover, what the Seder is all about. Um, But um, there's nothing more spiritual about it. There's nothing uh, in terms of um, uh, greater insight. Um, it, it's just a matter of choice. You're free to do it, and if you want to do it, um, we're certainly able to. Just remember that all of the Jewish festivals, all of them, especially uh, the Passover, are merely pictures or symbols of the one who has already come and fulfilled all of those pictures perfectly. So um, my only caution would be uh, sometimes when you go to those things, and usually these that involve Christians are given by Messianic Jews, um, you know, they try to drag you into a Jewish mindset. We don't need to be in a Jewish mindset. We're not Jews. We're born-again b- believers. Even the Jews that got saved in the first century church um, um, became Christians. And after a period of time in the book of Acts, uh, the church expanded both to Samaria and then to Gentiles, and that's the way the church has been going ever since. So I've been involved in a Seder at one time, 
And, um, um, you know, I know the Bible. I know the story. So uh, it just didn't have a whole bunch of value for me. But you're perfectly okay to do it. Here's a question from Paige. She says, uh, my question is about oneness Pentecostalism. Is oneness theology okay or is it heresy? Well, Paige, by definition, it's heresy. Uh, oneness Pentecostalism is um, um, takes two forms, really. There are some who just believe that there is just one God and the Trinity doesn't exist. Uh, but there are other oneness groups, uh, Jesus-only groups, that claim that Jesus was the Father, he was the Son, and he wa- was the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, you know, they, they don't recognize the Father or the Holy Spirit. It's all Jesus. It's not okay. It is heretical. And it's very important to understand that when we um, think about the one who saves us, because we know that only God can forgive sins. We know that Jesus was God. But the Bible clearly declares that the Father is God. Most people don't have a problem with that. The Bible also declares that the Holy Spirit is fully God. So it's not like there's three gods, it's one God in three persons, they're completely equal, they have different roles, but they're completely equal, but to deny the existence of the Trinity is heresy and Page would be um, disqualifying uh, from the kingdom of God. Now, you know, one of the things that we have to understand, there's going to be a lot of people with bad doctrine in heaven and I think sometimes, you know, we want to um, immediately judge them. Oh no, you're f- from this group or that group. Uh, I've known Mormons who are saved, and people say, "But Pastor Ron, Mormonism, Mormonism is cult," and and th- they're right. But you know, when somebody comes into the Mormon Church, they don't know that. A lot of the Mormons don't study their Bibles or their books any more than Christians study their their Bibles. So um, they don't know, and and uh, God understands our hearts. And so it's possible to, with the right heart, have the wrong Jesus because it was presented and you don't know any better. So somebody who goes to a oneness Pentecostal church is going to be swept up in the emotion. Often they're, they're, they're wildly charismatic. Uh, the people seem like they love God with all their heart, uh, but they don't know him. And it's easy for someone to come into that environment and, and be misled and still have enough Jesus to be saved. Again, God alone knows. Page, it's just the people who are committed to the doctrine. People who deny and are unwilling to open their hearts to the doctrine of the Trinity. And there are others as well. Uh, They're the ones who will be disqualified uh, from heaven. Hope I made that clear. 340-9585. Here is a question from Christopher. Um, Pastor Ron, when you finally gave your life to Jesus, what was the one thing that pushed you over the top? Uh, Christopher, I'm going to I have to give you two things. Um, the first one was complete and utter desperation. Uh, I was so at the end of myself, my life was such a disaster uh, that I was desperate for an answer. Now, as the Holy Spirit was working in my heart, I know Paul and other people were praying for me. I know that he was the one who was doing that work, but I was completely desperate. And that leads to the second thing that pushed me over the top. For me, Christopher, the idea of a new start was so unbelievable. I'm going to use an advertising term. Unbelievably delicious. What are the old candy bar? Indescribably delicious. The idea that I could put away all of my shame, the idea that, that the books would be absolutely clean for me, and I would get a new start was beyond my ability to comprehend, but it sounded so good. It felt so good even to think about it. Now, Christopher, I'm one of those guys, I have a vivid imagination, and I used to dream about new starts. I used to dream about moving away. I'd fantasize about starting over in a new place with 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 my name. My dad always used to drill into me over the years, Ronnie, don't bring shame on the name of Arbaugh. And I did. And you, know, you get to the point, at least I did, Christopher, where uh, I just wanted to give up. I, I felt like there was no hope. And to have a Christian tell me that life in Christ means a new beginning, 
um, was like putting a infinitely greater hot fudge sundae right in front of me. I, I just couldn't resist it. And so for me, the idea of getting a new start, uh, and, and I had nothing to lose and everything to gain. I feel like Peter, you know, when he ran to the tomb and ran right in past John uh, in, into the cave to see if Jesus was, was still there. Um, the idea for me of this new beginning was just too good to pass up. And Christopher, he didn't disappoint because the minute I gave my life to Jesus, although I couldn't have explained it and I didn't understand it even a little bit, the minute I gave my life to Jesus, I knew I was saved. I knew that the old was gone and the new had come. I'd never opened the Bible in my life at that point. But I knew it. I experienced it. It was like a a million-pound burden was lifted from my back. And I had a friend, somebody who didn't judge me based on what I'd done. I knew that in his eyes I was perfect. I was going to heaven. Couldn't believe it, Christopher, but that was it. So that was the thing really that that pushed me over the top, the idea that I could have a new beginning. And then, of course, I got desperate enough to stop trying to find my own new beginning. Uh, and that was it. Thanks for the question. I like thinking about that from time to time. Here is a question from Marty. Do you think the 1,000-year reign will happen before or after the Great Tribulation? And how do you answer people who say that we are already in the 1,000-year reign of Christ? Uh, Two very different questions. Uh, Marty, I don't think I know that the 1,000-year reign of Christ comes after the Great Tribulation. We are pre-trib and pre-mill in our eschatology. Now, we're that way not because somebody's convinced us. That's what the Bible teaches. Um, You can can read chronologically the book of Revelation, which is in in chronological order for the most part. And you have the the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom, after the Great Tribulation. And then after the Great Tribulation is the great, or after the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, rather, is the, is the, uh, the great white throne judgment. Uh, and then a new heaven and a new earth. So uh, that one, there's no question about. Um, the, the millennium will come after the Great Tribulation. Now, how I answer people who say that we're already in the thousand-year reign, those are, are called amillennialists, um, and, and they... Um, one or two characteristics. Either they take the book of Revelation uh, completely um, as a metaphor or, or symbolism, um, or the amillennialist side of this, Marty, um, they're the ones who say, well, we're already in the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. We just can't see it. It's like the kingdom of God has come, and, and God's ruling and reigning, but he's just sort of, of working things out. Uh, and Marty, the way I answer him is simply this. I read about, in, in the prophecy of Isaiah, we spent a long time uh, in the, 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 the last third of Isaiah talking about the millennial kingdom. And it's going to be so great. Um, the lion will play with the lamb. The, the, the child will play by the hole of a snake. There'll be no sickness, no sadness, no tears. Uh, it, it'll just be one of those an existence with perfect righteousness. And for somebody to say, we're already in it, then I tell them, look, if that's the case, I'm really disappointed. This is not the way the Bible describes the thousand-year reign on earth. We are in, Marty, and this isn't part of your question, but we are in the time that the Apostle Paul described to his young son in the faith, uh, Timothy. Now, when I say young, he was, I'm sure, in his 40s. But... Um, um, as Paul was getting ready to die and he knew his time had come, um, Paul wanted Timothy to be ready to take over. And in 2 Timothy, the most personal of all Paul's letters, beginning in chapter 3, Paul describes the days that we live in. He said, Timothy, mark this. In other words, take note of it. In the last days there will be perilous times and we live in those times now and then there's a list of behavior that Paul describes that are going to characterize those last days 
And all one has to do is look around and we see those characteristics in the world that we live in now. People are becoming hateful, lovers of themselves, not lovers of God, boastful, defiant. And that's the world that we live in, not lovers of the good. But people completely immersed in evil. Again, all we need to do, Marty, is look around. So that's the time that we live in now. That is not the millennial kingdom. And the millennials are, are, um, are simply people that um, are not faithful or consistent students of God's word rather than rightly dividing the word of God. Um, they're doing it haphazardly. So I hope that answers your question. Philip asks a question, why does God allow the devil to deceive people at the end of the millennium? You know, Philip, probably the first three or four years of my walk with the Lord, that was the question I wanted to know the answer to. Why, why, why? Well, here's the answer. Uh, after the Great Tribulation, there are going to be a lot of people. Certainly, the majority of people are going to die before Jesus returns. But there are going to be people in their flesh and blood bodies who live uh, as they go into the Great Tribulation, or as they go into the Millennial Kingdom. Now, because they have physical bodies, they're going to con- continue to reproduce. And what that means is for the entire thousand years that Jesus reigns, and remember, like when things were in the beginning, people are going to live nearly the whole time, if not the entire time of the thousand-year reign. Those who die uh, are going to die because they, they were judged for, for judged instantly, by the way, for rebellion against God. And the, the, the earth is going to be populated all over again. Now, what that means is that there's going to be multiplied billions upon billions, multiplied tens of billions, who are going to be in the millennial reign who've never had a choice to serve Jesus. They were forced to serve Jesus. During the millennium, Jesus is going to rule and reign with an iron scepter. In other words, it's his way or the highway. And people aren't going to have a choice to rebel. When they rebel, they're going to be judged instantly. So at the end of the thousand years, Satan is going to be released because all of those people need to make a choice of their own free will to serve Jesus. Jesus never forces anybody to serve him. And so at the end, after a thousand years of perfect righteousness, after a thousand years in a redeemed, reclaimed earth, you know, our world says, well, it's an environment that causes people to sin. It's, it's inequality that causes people to sin. It's, it's uh, a lack of economic security that causes people to sin. None of that's going to be true. And yet the number of people that Satan deceives is described in our Bibles as like the grains of sand on the seashore. And the whole point of Jesus allowing him to do this is to prove once and for all that environment's not our problem, inequality or injustice isn't the problem. Uh, The problem is us. We've always been the problem. And at the end, even after a thousand years of Jesus' reign, our sin nature is still going to be the problem. Now, Philip, you and I, we will be in our glorified physical resurrected bodies, so we won't be affected by Satan being let loose to deceive the nations. But everybody gets a choice. Yesterday in our Bible study here at Calvary Chapel, um, we're with Jesus as he's standing before Pilate being accused of things and carrying his cross down the Via Della Rosa to Golgotha. Every one of those people had a choice. You and I, we have a choice to make. After a thousand years of no choice, God's going to say, here's your choice. Better make it wisely. And all of the people who are deceived by Satan, Philip, are going to spend eternity. That's when the lake of fire is going to be created and they're going to spend forever and ever there. Good question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll free 877-630-KSLR. 
Here is a question from Brian from our email inbox. I want to know whether the Septuagint Bible is the most valid and accurate Bible available today. Uh, please let me know your views on the English translation of the Greek Septuagint Bible. Um, Brian, the Septuagint probably dates um, 189 or so B.C. Um, it is a, a very reliable translation. And remember, it's only the Old Testament. Um, it's the Greek translation uh, of the Old Testament. Uh, you will often see our, um, our New Testament writers quoting from the Septuagint. So it is likely by the time of Jesus in the first century church, it is very likely the Bible that was in it most widely circulated and uh, uh, would be read by everybody So um, during the Roman Empire. So um, you, it is available. Um, whether it's more valid or accurate than, uh, than our other translations, uh, I personally don't think so. Uh, but I know that, that it was the one that was used um, in many Jewish homes um, from the time it was written. Um, remember Alexander the Great, when he conquered the world, he sort of made common Koine Greek the, the language of the world, so it would be the Bible that people could understand. Uh, but I don't see any real problems of it, uh, and I would think it was, it was good. Now, um, my, my view on the English translation of the Septuagint uh, I think that's sort of a that's a translation of a translation, uh, and and uh, I, I wouldn't be comfortable with that. I think the English translations that we need to depend on for the Old Testament are those that we have um, a, a multiple manuscript pieces of evidence for, uh, and uh, I don't think that we need to depend on a translation of the Septuagint when we have translations uh, available, solid translations available of, of the original manuscripts. So um, one thing God has always done, Brian, is he's taken care of his word. Uh, so while the Septuagint is a, is a fine translation, um, the Septuagint, um, like the NIV or like the NASB or the King James and the New King James, um, is, is not the original, inerrant, infallible manuscript. And believe me, we have so much quality in terms of manuscript evidence. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were, were revolutionary. Uh, so I, I wouldn't recommend taking the Septuagint and making an English translation out of it uh, when we have English translations that come from older and more inspired um, translations or manuscripts. So, Brian, I hope that answers your question. I'd be interested, Brian, if you want to write us back um, why you ask or who told you where you got the idea that the English translation of the Septuagint might be a better translation than some of the others that we have. Get one more question this side of the break. We'd love your live calls. Uh, here's one I can do. Wendy, this kind of question always upsets me. Wendy said, my pastor said women should not wear makeup or jewelry. Is that true? Wendy, what's true is you need a new pastor. You need a different church. Um, you're in a, a legalistic church, um, a church that uh, rather than trying to understand the Bible in context and rightly dividing it, are completely and in some cases uh, willfully misinterpreting it to suit their own needs. You know, whenever you find yourself in a legalistic church, um, you're sitting under people trying to control you. And there's nothing to, to, to read those passages about makeup or jewelry as a prohibition against looking good um, indicates you have no ability at all to understand the point the author is making. So, um, Wendy, please feel free to wear makeup. Please feel free to wear jewelry. J. Vernon McGee used to say, if the barn door needs paint and paint it. But I've just seen, and the reason this makes me angry is because I've just seen too many women uh, come in here who 
have been hurt by that kind of legalistic teaching, Wendy. So please, please, please um, feel free. Uh, you can wear your hair long. You can wear your hair short. Uh, you can wear pants. Uh, just just worship God with your whole heart, and he's going to find that you're dressed beautifully for him. And that's the only thing that matters. The one prohibition we have in terms of our dress for women is to dress modestly. That's all. And there's nothing immodest about wearing jewelry or makeup. Thanks for the question, Wendy. Phones have been really quiet since Monday. We usually get some calls, 340-9585 or toll-free, 877-630-KSLR. This is The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and The Word to Stand On for Life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program we have open lines 340-9585 here's a question from margaret um do you allow women to be ushers in your church margaret of course we do and we have a whole bunch of them, men, women, uh, sometimes their children. One of the things I really enjoy, Margaret, is we've got husbands and wives who serve in the usher ministry, and their kids serve along with them. I had this wonderful, wonderful um, uh, moment yesterday where, in fact, the, the daughter of the, the, the husband and wife who lead our usher ministry just came running up to me to tell me good morning and, and, and to watch them serve and and the kids help pass out the communion elements. So yes, we do allow women to be ushers in our church. Margaret, the only role the Bible prohibits women from participating in is that of the pastor, um, teacher of a church. That's the only one. There's nothing else that women are forbidden to, to, to participate in or do. Jesus is an equalizer. He's not trying to discriminate against women. So for me, if, if I were not to allow women to be ushers, then I would be the one who would be misrepresenting the Lord. So uh, we do uh, have many. Uh, one of the things I try to do, Margaret, is encourage new people who are a little bit shy to be in the usher ministry. I introduce them right away to, the, to, the, to uh, Matt and Lauren, who are the, the leaders of the ministry there. And uh, I tell them, you know, that'll force you to come out of your shell. You'll get to know people. And and almost always they come back thanking me. And yes, we have men and women in pretty equal numbers uh, as as ushers and greeters. Let's go to the phones. Thankfully, Cindy bailed me out. Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. You Hi. know what? <laughs> Saturday, I was already thinking about Simon, uh, who carried Jesus' cross, and I had, I had this whole scenario built up in my brain, and, and I was thinking about the range of uh, emotions that he must have gone through, you know, in the course of maybe a week or so. And first I was thinking about, first, I, in, in my little scenario, he was already a Christian and was totally sold out for what Jesus was teaching, and then all of a sudden he's having to carry this innocent man's cross who he and all these other, everybody else believed was going to free Israel, and he's carrying his cross, uh, this man's cross, to be crucified, and I can't imagine how devastated he must have felt and, and how horrible and guilty and, and terrible he felt. So then he has to go through that for a few days. But then it turns out that Jesus rose from the dead, and it turned out to be God's will that, that Jesus was crucified. So now he's, he's elated, and he's thinking, wow, God used me for this absolutely wonderful um, 
service and, you know, not in a prideful way, but just in, in a way of thinking how blessed he was that out of everybody on the planet, he got to carry the cross that led to salvation. So that was just my whole kind of big scenario I had built up in my head, and I was really glad that you had taken the time that you did to talk about uh, Simon yesterday, because it was mm. a really good thing. So I don't know that I really have a, a question other than, do you think that after, um, after the supper that any of the disciples really got and understood what was going on, that Jesus was going to be crucified because he was supposed to, or do you think they were still kind of in a fog about it? So I'll get off the phone and um, and listen. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you. You know, Cindy, I think the, the disciples, we, we know that, that they didn't get it until the end. They still didn't get it after he was crucified because they were the most surprised people in Jerusalem uh, when when Mary and the other ladies, Mary Magdalene and the other ladies came back and said, we saw the Lord, the, the, the tomb is empty. And and remember, there, there's a place where it says it, it sounded like what the women were saying sounded like nonsense to the to the twelve, uh, the eleven actually. Uh, and and it was just uh, you know, and, and we we can't blame them. We can't be too critical of them, because they saw him die with their own eyes. They saw the horrible beating that he took. Uh, so um, no, they didn't get it. Uh, they were sort of uh, in shock. Uh, at the same time. Uh, their heart was so crushed, uh, and we have to understand that. Now, with Simon, uh, and the reason I took so much time with him yesterday, Cindy, is, uh, and, and this my only disagreement with you, the, the range of emotions would have been unbelievable, but, but uh, Simon wasn't uh, a, a follower of Jesus. Um, I don't think until they made eye contact when Simon was forced at the tip of a Roman spear to pick up Jesus' crossbeam. Um, um, uh, he was a Jewish proselyte, a convert to Judaism. Uh, what that would have meant was that uh, he was there for his very first uh, Passover. He'd come a long way, sort of like the trip of a lifetime. Imagine going on a, on a cruise and something you wanted to do your whole life. And then everybody on the boat gets sick and think, oh, worst vacation ever. Well, I think that's what it was like when he first got to town and, and, and saw Jesus being hailed as the, as the Messiah on, on what we call Palm Sunday. Uh, he would have thought, wow, this is great. I'm here at the right time and, and, and the Messiah is coming. Um, but then to go through the rest of the week and see what Jesus was forced to endure, uh, to, to hear the shouts of people yelling crucify him to see the bloodthirst in so many of those hearts coming out of their mouths to see him being beaten and insulted would have been overwhelming and, and I believe with all of my heart Cindy impossible to process and then came that moment where he had to at the at the cost of his life if he refused he had to bend down and pick up that crossbeam he would have looked into that face that had been beaten so brutally I said in church yesterday it would have turned his stomach that's how horrible the beating Jesus took was and I think he looked at Jesus as a Jew I, said, I, I don't want any part of this Jesus of course knew that he knows what's in man's heart and I think Jesus told him it's okay maybe it was just eye contact maybe Jesus nodded at him who knows but at that moment Simon knew and while technically he wasn't born again then because the spirit hadn't been given that would come some 50 days later At that moment, he became a follower of Jesus. Imagine his response when he heard the tomb was empty. So that's why I spend time on that story. It's, it's, uh, we want to be careful not to Christianize those Jewish stories uh, too much, but, but uh, no doubt Simon became a believer. And one of the things I said in my message yesterday, I wanted everybody to understand that that not only was Simon an important figure in the first century church, 
uh, his two sons, Rufus and Alexander. Paul greets Rufus by name in Romans chapter 16. And, and uh, historically, we know that they were giants in the first century church. So this guy met Jesus. He looked in his eye. He went home, brought his family back. And he was a part of everything that happened in the first century church. So I, I just think it's too good a story that I think sometimes Simon gets a verse. Um, but I think sometimes we, we, we miss what's going on behind the scenes. By the way, Cindy, next Sunday, um, I'm going to talk about the other story, I think, that merits our attention. Uh, the thief on the cross that, that actually came to Jesus and got saved. Thanks for the call, Cindy. Here's a question from Tony. He said, I, was, I visited your church and was shocked that there are no Sunday school classes. Why not? And do you plan on having them? Um, Tony, no, we don't. You know, um, Sunday school classes are sort of a, um, a church thing, denominational church thing. Um, you know, they'll, they'll have a worship service, and then before or after the worship service, they'll have Sunday school classes. Um, our, our services, are that's all we do is we teach the Bible. So our service, we have three services on Sunday morning, and we teach the Bible. So the, the kind of teaching that you get in a smaller Sunday school setting is the kind of teaching that we do routinely. And uh, I think it's, it's sort of sad, and again, I'm not against small Bible study classes or Sunday school uh, as such, but it, it's just kind of sad to me that worship services turned into to music and shouting and and, and um, you know, we're, we're not worshiping God unless the Bible's open. So that's what we do. We, we teach the Bible. And um, if you visited your, our church, you know I teach for 40 or 45 minutes on Sundays. And then we get everybody out, and, and we've got worship too, of course. Uh, and then everybody goes out, we get a new service that comes in. So uh, we just don't think there's a need in the way I teach uh, I think it's really redundant. So, Tony, no, we don't have any plans uh, to start Sunday school classes. Uh, I'll say this, Tony. We have uh, smaller Bible studies all week long. Uh, I do a Bible study on Wednesday night. And by the way, we're teaching Genesis, starting Genesis on Wednesday night. Uh, this week, Genesis chapter 1. Um, and and it's it's a smaller study than our Sunday services. I teach Friday night. It's a New Testament book, and uh, it's a smaller service uh, than than our Sundays. Uh, but we also have men's and women's and youth Bible studies on Monday. Uh, we have Spanish Bible study for ladies on Thursday. We have a men's Spanish language or a regular church Spanish language church on Sunday evenings, uh, five o'clock, uh, and and then we have. Um, studies that are going on um, in people's homes. So we've got lots and lots of Bible study going on. And um, I want everybody, the larger group, um, to really be able to worship, not just in song, but opening the Word of God as well. Graham says, since the Holy Spirit wasn't given until after Jesus' resurrection, how do you explain the saints who had the Holy Spirit? Graham, if you read carefully in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon them. It's a completely different relationship. Uh, Jesus, when he breathed on his disciples, said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, and then it says, Up to that time he had not yet been given, because Jesus hadn't been crucified and risen from the dead. But the Holy Spirit has always been active in the life of God's people, but not in the same way. That's why David would be able to, to, to pray in his um, famous and wonderful song of repentance, Psalm 51, uh, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. We know that the Holy Spirit given to us uh, is irrevocable. He's a seal guaranteeing our inheritance. So there's absolutely no possibility that we could, we could sing that song uh, as New Testament Christians, so we sing it because it's biblical, but I mean in a, in a in a literal sense, 
Um, but but David knew that when he sinned, he, he sent the Holy Spirit away. And so the idea is the Holy Spirit would come upon them to perform these supernatural feats. Uh, Samson, who was, uh, uh, his life was was punctuated by, by compromise. Um, he did these great feats of strength. He killed a thousand Philistines with a jawbone of a, of a donkey. Um, all of the feats of strength, the Spirit came up on him. But, but it wasn't like you and I have the Holy Spirit. When prophets prophesied, it was a Spirit coming up on them. So completely different relationship. The uh, Old Testament Jews had no concept or understanding of a relationship with God, um, the person of the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, the hope of glory, that we understand. Um, you know, sometimes I think uh, we get so carried with the miracles in the Old Testament, especially as we get into the parting of the Red Sea and all those things. Um, but as much as we'd like to see those kind of miracles, uh, if we could ask every Old Testament saint who ever lived right now, would you change places with even the most ordinary of New Testament Christians? Would you change places with us? And they'd say, in a minute. Why? Because they have no idea about eternal security. They have no idea how high and wide and long and deep the love of God is. They had no idea of the presence of God being with them. They, they didn't have a way to approach God that we do. So the intimacy, Graham, that we share with Jesus is something that they could only dream about. And Job did dream about it, but that's, that's all he could do. So, Graham, I hope that answers your question. Uh, Philip says... Um, Pastor Ryan, I have a personal question for you that I don't mean to offend with. Uh-oh, what is it? He says, how can you be so sure about the Bible when other people say they can't be sure or are changing their view of some doctrines as they grow? Philip, that's not offensive at all. It's a very important question. You know, I think God wants us to be sure about things. You know, I'm a, I'm a Paul always says this, I'm a foundational person. Um, I think logically, if something was true when I got saved 29 years ago, it's still true. Now, it's very obvious that there were lots of things I believed that weren't true. But you see, I wasn't sure about those things 29 years ago. I was just getting excited about doctrine. I was just opening my Bible and finding out all these wonderful things that Jesus had done for me. And I didn't understand any of them. That's why I studied, and that's why I asked so many questions. But here's the one thing that I can tell you, Philip, that's been true in my life from the very beginning. When I discovered something was true 29 years ago or 29 days ago, I've never changed my mind. And I've never let go of something that I knew was true because some new doctrine somebody's espousing intrigued me. I am sure, Philip, I think God wants you to be sure what the Bible says. That's why he exhorts you to, to rightly divide it, to, to, to understand it, to really dig in. That's why he gave you the Holy Spirit so you could know who he is. I think the question you should ask, Philip, is the question of all those who are constantly chained in their minds. I mean, think about it. I'm a pastor. If I keep changing my mind, how can anybody here follow me? How can I say to the people of Calvary Chapel, follow me as I follow Christ, and then I keep changing directions because I, I don't know what I believe this week. And again, I have the gift of stubbornness when it comes to these godly things. And I'm simply not going to change my mind because somebody thinks they've got all the answers. And usually, Philip, it's younger Christians, but, but uh, sadly, I've got some friends who are always chasing some new truth. And there is no new truth. So I want people to be able to follow me. And I wouldn't even 
presume to say that if I didn't have any idea where I was going. I just can't imagine how frustrating it would be for somebody to go to church, send their pastor's teaching, and then the pastor come up one day and say, you know, I've got a new uh, systematic theology. I'm going to I'm uh, changing what I believe about predestination. I'm changing what I believe about the gifts of the Spirit. Or I listened to somebody and he or she convinced me that my view was wrong. Nobody convinced me of that. And I think the more you study, the more convinced you'll be. The more convinced you are, the more stable your walk will be. And then, Philip, if you look behind you, you're going to see a whole bunch of people following you. That's just the way it is. So I hope that uh, answers your question, Philip. I, I'm not uh, being arrogant with that view. Um, I just never throw away something that's true um, for something that I'm not sure of. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Peter. Matthew 24, what generation is Jesus talking about? Um, Peter, it's actually Matthew 24, verse 34. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. You know, Peter, people have been arguing and worrying about what generation means um, from the time almost Jesus uttered it. Um, But it's really, really simple. Um, it's it's the generation alive. Remember, in this passage of Scripture, we're being told about the signs that are going to happen during the end times. Um, the, the sky, the, the sun will be blood red. That's what people are looking for, blood moons. And uh, there'll be wonders and miracles in the sky. He's saying to his disciples, the generation alive when those signs come will be the final generation. He's certainly not talking to Peter, James, John, and the others because, of course, they are already dead. Um, He's not talking about the generation uh, who um, um, sees Israel return back in like like we did in 1948. Um, He's talking about the generation who is alive when those signs appear. It's one of the reasons, Peter, that you don't need to look to the sky. You don't need to buy books on generational curses or or blood moons. Um, um, the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's distress, has been prophesied um, from from cover to cover. And Jesus is simply saying, and this is in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is simply saying that the generation who sees those signs will be the final generation on earth. And it's really not that hard. It's just that we've gotten carried away with it. You know, Peter, um, when the Jesus movement started back in the 60s and 70s, there was a book that was written by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. And he started speculating about what a generation means. You know, generations 40 years. There were some say, no, generations 100 years. Um, and, and then they would start looking at these signs and wonders. And they missed the whole point of the passage. So we don't have to speculate. If you see the moon turn blood red, if you see the skies turn dark, the sun goes dark, if you see uh, great signs and and wonders in the sky, then you know that this is the final generation on Earth. Okay, we've got time, I think, for one more question. Got three minutes? Okay. Here's a good one. This is from Brenda. She says, Pastor Ron, I would like to share with people more but I have difficulty with steering the conversation toward Jesus, especially with strangers. Any suggestions on how I can be more effective? Brenda, God bless you and your heart for wanting to share more, but I think a couple of things, and I'll give you the directions, uh, uh, help, I think, but um, I, I think you've got to overcome the difficulty. I think we've got to realize that obedience is met with the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5.32 says, God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. That context there is in power. So even if you feel a little intimidated or uncomfortable, um, when you take that step of faith, the Holy Spirit is going to come behind you and sort of give you a push. And, and, and then it's going to be Him ministering through you. Now, I'm one of those people who um, is always looking for an opportunity to talk with someone. 
Um, Brenda, here's the, the, the help I can give you with steering the conversation. I look at people's hats. I'll read their T-shirts. Now, I don't see well, so i got to get close. I hope I'm not creeping anybody out. But, but um, uh, you know, I, I'm looking for something that enables me to open up a conversation with them. Once I do that and I start talking with them, the Holy Spirit's going to open the doors. Um, uh, Paul and I, we go into restaurants and, and stop at the table of complete strangers and ask them how they like their breakfast or how, what are you eating, what's good here kind of thing. Because we want to open a conversation. Um, Paula has a wonderful way of doing it. She'll uh, look at a, at a woman, wife or a girlfriend, and, and she'll say to the husband or the boyfriend, boy, you have good taste. She is beautiful. And um, people will open up. So just look for opportunities. They want to share. When somebody's heavily tatted, they want to talk about their tats. That's why they got them. So there's just a million ways that you can steer the conversation. But then trust Jesus to open the door for him to come through. And it always happens. It always happens. Brenda Paul and I were celebrating in March 50 years together. And uh, um, I used to say that, all the, oh yeah, this is my wife. We've been together 50 years. And people just want to talk. So I hope that helps, Brenda. Good luck. God bless you for wanting to share Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Even though the phones were really, really quiet, uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You've been listening to The Word of Santa for Life. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at CalvarySA.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.